we're going to continue worshiping together by praying together. Um, and so after each time of silence that we share together, we're going to say the words, Lord, hear our prayer together. Let's pray. God, we gather this morning to worship you as a community with singing, with teaching, with communion. We worship you. We recenter ourselves on you and your story. We also worship you with silence. We long to hear you in our everyday lives and to be aware of your presence in the hustle and bustle of daily responsibilities. But we know that we hear you, as Elijah did, most clearly when we turn all the noise down. And so this morning, as we pray, we start with silence. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we confess our sins to you. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. Would you forgive us for being stuck in our own ways of thinking? Forgive us for being stuck in old patterns and missing the ways that you are present and active. Would you forgive us for making ourselves the center of the story and losing faith in your larger purpose? We confess our sins to you. As we do so, would you make us new in your grace and your love? Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, would you give us what we need today? Would you provide for us and for the people that we love and care about? Would you especially be close to those who feel used up and unnoticed, for those who feel as though their lives have been an effort in futility? Please give them hope and purpose and new perspective. Would you draw close to those who feel lonely and alone? Would you meet them? Would you make their lonely places the place of your presence? We ask for what we need today. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. God, we want to pray for our city, our province, and our country this morning. We pray for those who have been displaced by forest fires in BC. 
Would you bring coordinated efforts and rain and the right mix of help to calm those fires? We pray for our country as we continue to hear of more graves found on residential school land. Give our leaders wisdom and soft hearts so that we can respond in healing ways to our Indigenous neighbours. And help us not to grow weary of standing with those who mourn. We pray for our province as we enter a new stage of reopening. We pray for uh, protection for those who are vaccinated and not vaccinated. We pray that businesses would experience new health and growth. And we pray that variants would not bring new waves of sickness. We pray for our city, our province, and our country. Together, Lord, hear our prayer. Open our ears to your spirit this morning, God. Bring us encouragement and challenge and hope where we need it. Re-energize us with your love. Remind us that we are not alone. And give us new patterns of thinking and new ways of understanding you. And most of all, remind us that you are Lord and you are faithful. Amen. Well, good morning again. This morning, here we are, week three of our summer series, How to Wonder, the story of Elijah and Elisha on attempting and accepting miracles. And so far in the stories that we've covered, they've been reminding us that God is looking after this world, and God is looking after you and me. So this morning, we're going to continue down that road as we spend some time thinking about those moments where God acts differently than we think God should act. We're going to talk a little bit about loneliness and how loneliness can mess with our perception of reality. And then finally, we're going to explore why getting out of the way might be the most empowering thing you do for others and for yourself. And guys, you got to know, I'm bringing the heat this morning. You're getting the A game. This isn't a summer series. This is like a fall primetime sermon. Are you ready for this? Oh, it's going to be good. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Buckle up. Ahab reported to Jezebel everything that Elijah had done, including the massacre of the prophets. Jezebel immediately sent a messenger to Elijah with her threat. The gods will get you for this and I'll get even with you. By this time tomorrow, you'll be as dead as any one of those prophets. And when Elijah saw how things were, he ran for dear life to Beersheba, far in the south of Judah. He left his young servant there and went on into the desert. Another day's journey, he came to a lone broom bush and collapsed in its shade, wanting in the worst way to be done with it all, to just die. Enough of this, God. Take my life. I'm ready to join my ancestors in the grave. Exhausted, he fell asleep under the lone broom bush. Okay, so before we go any further, let's just set the stage for where things are at for our hero here. Elijah has threatened the crown, and now the crown is threatening Elijah. From what we read, Elijah seems low, depressed, 
discouraged, and out of ideas. And according to the text here this morning, the very first words recorded, the very first words he speaks following that amazing display with the prophets of Baal, following that amazing foot race with the chariot from last week, what are his very first words to God after seeing all that incredible stuff? Kill me now. Remember, he's just come off an incredible high. God has made God's self incredibly real. Elijah has just participated in a clear victory. He should be on top of the world. Instead, it's the opposite. He's worn out. He's afraid. And he's just done. Just done with all of it. And into that moment, into that space, God speaks these words. Then the word of God came to him. So Elijah, what are you doing here? Well, I've been working my heart out for the God of angel armies, said Elijah. The people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed the places of worship, and murdered your prophets. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. Then he was told, go, stand on the mountain at attention before God, and God will pass by. A hurricane ripped through the mountains and shattered the rocks before God, but God wasn't found in the wind. After the wind, an earthquake, but God wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, fire, but God wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, a gentle, quiet whisper. So again, let's pay attention to what's happening here. It's like God just taps Elijah on the shoulder and says, Hey, Elijah, why are you so low? Why have you given up? After all you've seen, after all we've been through, why are you here in this place? Why are you here in this headspace? And then Elijah responds, he complains, and rightfully so, because nothing has worked out. Nothing worked out the way it was supposed to go. He did everything right. He followed every command. And still, it feels like it didn't amount to anything other than, well, now his life is in danger. And if you stop and take a look at Elijah, you can kind of track with his rationale, right? In his mind, there's a pattern here that should be followed. And it's a cause and effect. I did this, so this should happen. One plus one equals two. There is a pattern for how God works, a map to be followed. And because this is Elijah's way of thinking, it's starting to eat him up on the inside. Why? Because God is not following the pattern that Elijah had created for God in his mind. You see, God is working in ways that go beyond Elijah's experience. And Elijah is having a very hard time recognizing that. But here's the thing. Elijah's not wrong about that pattern. In fact, the pattern that he's expecting is actually the pattern of life for Moses. So Elijah's like looking back to Moses and he's trying to follow that pattern, Moses' pattern, for his own life. He wants to follow that Moses map. Because you see, with Moses, God made God's self known in the earthquake, in the wind, in the shattering of rocks, in the fire. 
In fact, the very mountain that Elijah has been called to to have this conversation with God is the exact same mountain where God and Moses used to meet. So in a way, it's like their lives are mirrored. They're the same, but different. And Elijah is having a hard time grasping this new situation. Why? Because God is speaking to Elijah. Actually, he's not speaking to Elijah in the same way that he spoke to Moses. And that is messing with Elijah because Elijah, in his mind, there is a pattern, there is a map, and God's not following any of it. But you and I, we're not too far from that either, right? We expect God to act in the ways we expect God to act. And more often than not, like Elijah, we think of it in terms of cause and effect. I do this, God does that. Based on my past experience, God did this, and well, he was going to do the exact same thing in the future. And then when God ends up operating outside of our experiences, outside of our expectations, we get to be sort of like Elijah, right? Nothing seems to be working out, and maybe we felt like Elijah. Maybe we've muttered things like, just kill me now. What's the point? I have no idea what you're doing. God? And if any of that feels painfully familiar, maybe start to think about it a little bit like this. In the late 1920s, early 1930s, a group of anthropologists began to study people in this rural, remote part of the former Soviet Union. And the people in the ha hamlet were illiterate. They had no formal education, and they lived in a culture that was virtually untouched by the outside world or modern society. And what that meant was everything that they knew about the world around them was purely and strictly based on their first-hand personal experience. So for the anthropologist, this is the perfect control group to run some experiments involving identifying patterns. Let's see how these people work. So they started with colors first, and then some embroideries, and then some tools, and eventually with people. And what they found was that these remote villagers, again, whose society was virtually untouched by the modern world, those people in the early 1920s, late 1920s, early 1930s, they grouped things differently. They saw patterns differently because those patterns and those groupings were based on only their limited personal past experience. Let me give you some examples. Early on, they presented this test group with a picture of a hammer, a saw, a hatchet, and a log, and then they were asked to group these items appropriately. So, when you and I look at those items, it's pretty easy, right? We can group those, the first three together because they're tools, and then there's the log, right? That's basically what we would agree to say, right? But the villagers saw it completely different. They said, no way. There is no way you can group the saw, the hammer, and the hatchet without the log. Those four things belong together ever and always. Why? What was their reasoning? Well, in their minds, the hammer, saw, and hatchet are useless without a log. So based on their personal past experience, no other combination was even remotely possible. Crazy, right? 
Let's do another one. They were presented with this image of three adults and one child, and again, asked to group these things, these people, appropriately. Now, you and I look at that picture, and it seems obvious, right? We're going to group the adults in one group, and then the kid's going to be all off on their own. Well, not so for the villagers. Why not? Their response was adamant. They said, you would never group adults without a child. The reason? Because adults work in the field, and the kid has a job in that. The kid acts as a runner for tools or for food or whatever. If there wasn't a kid around in a group of adults, who would run all the errands? What would happen? It actually would ruin our entire day. We would lose productivity. So in their minds, you would never, ever, ever group adults and children separately. Why? Again, based on their past firsthand experience, well, they would never do it another way. Now, before you think you're smarter than those rural people in the late 20s and early 30s, I would like to run some experiments on you this morning. You in? You want to play this game with me? Absolutely you do. I'm going to throw up a few slides, all right? I'm going to ask you some questions. I would ask you kindly to keep the answer to yourself so you don't spoil it for anyone around you, okay? I'm going to show you a picture here of some words. And in your mind, I want you to think about maybe what's the biggest way or best way to group the following words. Take a good look. Okay, let it soak in. Yeah. And if you're not quite sure yet, let me try to help you out here. Let me just add some color. Maybe this helps you a little bit. Maybe the picture's becoming more clear. Let me add one more variation. Mm-hmm. But it's not quite finished yet, is it? No, it's not. Tonight it'll be finished, though. What is this? What do we see? What is this, Theo? Do you have any idea? What is it? Montreal is a French city. That's true. That does make them very different. Yes, that is true. And what's that, sorry? Yeah, it's true. They are, they, they are in Quebec. That's right, which is part of Canada for now. Yeah, that's great. Cool. But for the rest of us, maybe a little bit older, thanks, Theo, for the answer, what we have here is what? It's a grouping of the original six NHL teams, right? And most of you know that purely based on the fact that you grew up in Canada. You are a Canadian, right? The names are a tip-off. The colors are a clue. Even striking out every single team that didn't make it to the final this year and leaving that one team, you know, without a strike on it, but you know full well they don't deserve to be in the Stanley Cup final, but it's all going to come together tonight. Again, that touches on some personal experiences and some personal biases. Now hang on to that. Let's do another one here. And again, keep the answers to yourself. How would you describe or qualify or, or group these words together. This was a bit easier, right? Right? What is this? What are these? They're bridges, right? And how do you know that? You know that because in your personal firsthand experience, you live in Saskatoon. You know what these are. You know where they're all located. You've probably used each one. But if you've never been to Saskatoon before, if you know nothing about this city, its history, its favorite sons, or its obsession with bridges, you might have a hard time grouping these words, names, together. Okay, now that you're all warmed up, 
we're going to do one more. I'm actually going to run a little test on you that was run on those villagers about 100 years ago, all right? And let's see how smart you are. Let's see if you can do better than them. Again, please keep your answers, responses to yourself. I'm going to show you a picture here. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you a question. So take a look at the picture. And my question to you is this. Which yellow circle is bigger? The one on your left or the one on your right? Just keep your answers to yourself. All right, take a good look. Squint in if you need to. Let me help you out a little bit. I'll give you a little bit of this for you. And then I'll do a little bit of this for you. And then I'll do this again. And then I'll do this one more time. Now, if you originally guessed that the one on your right is bigger than the one on your left, you're incorrect, right? You're wrong. But what it probably means is that you are a citizen of the industrialized world. You have been trained to look at certain things and group things in a certain way. But the remote villagers a hundred years ago correctly identified that both yellow circles were the exact same size. And so the researchers suggested that this difference exists because those pre-modern villagers, they don't see the context that we see, whether it's with tools and logs or adults and children or the arrangement of dots. Simply put, they don't see the relationship between the center yellow dot and the surrounding red dots. It's not a pattern that they are used to. They're not trained to see things grouped in that way. And so the researchers concluded that when presented with a pattern that was outside of their personal experiences, the villagers were at a total loss. Now, doesn't that sound a lot like the challenge that Elijah is facing in our story this morning? The only pattern he knows, the only grouping he has been trained to recognize is Moses. So based on the pattern of Moses' life, based on his personal experience, the only pattern for God to speak and work is through loud things. Fire, crashing rocks, earthquakes, and wind. So we begin to see now that his understanding of God was limited by his own personal past experience. And I wonder if there's something in that for us today. And maybe the hard question for you and I is this. Do you limit God based on your experience, your personal experience, your past experience? Or are you limiting God just purely based on the pattern that you've developed in your mind as to how God should work. Cause and effect. If I do this, God does that. And is it possible? Is it possible that God's wonder and power can be enjoyed in ways that you've yet to experience? That you've yet to figure out or understand? That you've yet to discover? You see, Elijah is stuck on one frequency, but God is trying to open him up just a little bit wider to receive new experiences, to receive new insights, perhaps new names for God as we discussed a couple of weeks ago, new ways to enjoy God. 
And my friends, I think God is trying to do the exact same thing with you and I even today. Because God is so much bigger, so much grander than whatever pattern we've shoved him into. And like Elijah, he invites us deeper into the mystery of his goodness and of his love. And so, when Elijah heard the quiet voice, he muffled his face with his great cloak, went to the mouth of the cave, and stood there. A quiet voice asked, So, Elijah, now tell me, what are you doing here? And Elijah said it again. I've been working my heart out for God, the God of angel armies, because the people of Israel have abandoned your covenant, destroyed your places of worship, and murdered your prophets, and I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. We're getting more of the same from Elijah, pretty much repeating what he just said earlier. Again, he's in despair. He's tried to sleep it off. Nothing has helped. He's afraid, and now he's added one more worry right at the end here. He's saying, you know what? Not only is everything going bad, not only are they out for my life, but I'm alone. I'm all by myself. I'm the only one left, he says, as he continues to struggle with God working in ways that don't fit his pattern. And hey, like Elijah, we felt some of those same things, right? There have been times where you felt you've done your best. You've done your best and nobody noticed. Nobody cared. Nobody paid attention. No one saw how much you put into it. You gave it your all, blood, sweat, and tears, and things didn't quite work out. And now maybe you're on the short end of the stick, so it feels even worse. And beyond that, maybe you feel alone because nobody cares about what you care about. And I wonder... If we sit in that place too long, then we begin to allow ourselves to go down that same rabbit hole that Elijah did. All of a sudden, we're measuring who God is in the present based on dated patterns and old groupings. And if that hits close to home for you this morning, consider this. Years ago, when Netflix was trying to figure out what you liked and what I liked, and then figured out how to give us more of what we liked, and then they figured out how to charge us monthly to give us what we like, they started by using old patterns, old data. They began analyzing your viewing history and mine, and then tried to make connections. What was it about this movie that brings such different people together? Is it the actor? Is it the genre? Is it the jokes? Is it the year that the movie was published? Is that what draws people together? And after a frustrating time of trying to put those dots together, nothing was working, they realized, and get this, because this is the money idea right here. They soon realized that you cannot predict future behavior based on past behavior. And then it clicked. Netflix, instead of predicting what you might like, they examined who you are like, and the complexity is captured therein. What an insight. 
And obviously, they're not the only ones who've discovered this little gold mine. Take it a step further. Recently, I was looking at making an online purchase for a friend of mine. She was out jogging, and then like a gnat got caught in her eye, and they got all swollen and puffy and super gross and weird. It really weirded me out, but I felt bad for her. Uh, her name's Tara. May, it might be Tara. I'm not sure. So I went online, and I was like, oh, i got to find a gag gift for Tara. Something to say, I feel bad that a bug got caught in your eye, and now it's like way out to here. So I went online. I'm looking for something for her. And based on my search, based on who I was like, Amazon thought I was in danger and suggested the following items for me. Science goggles in bulk, caution tape, and maybe a doctor included with two science goggles. Who knows? Thank you. Thank you, Amazon. When we think about it like this, you realize it, right? This is not what I'm into. I'm not into goggles and caution tape. I'm not even into jogging. It's who I am. It's who is like me. It's what people like me look for. And so with a similar approach, God speaks to Elijah in the sheer sound of silence, inviting him to be open. Open to what? Open to a new pattern open to a new grouping, one that exists even if he can't quite see it yet. Because none of it is based on what people like, but who people are like. And so God interrupts Elijah's wallowing with this revelation. Meanwhile, God says, I'm preserving for myself 7,000 souls, the knees that haven't bowed to the god Baal, the mouths that haven't kissed his image. It's this? Oh, it's a new pattern. Oh, it's literally a new grouping. And it lets Elijah know that he is not alone, that he is not the only one who cares. And just because he doesn't recognize the pattern it doesn't mean that God isn't at work. And so as God gently crowbars Elijah out of his self-pity and self-righteousness, he offers you and I the same freedom today, and it's this. Your life has never been about what you like. Mm -mm. Your life has always been about who you're like. Who you're like. That's the big grouping. That's the big pattern. And maybe some of you need to hear that very, very clearly today. You are not alone. Even if it feels that way, looks that way, seems that way. And perhaps the best way to grab that truth, to embody it, is to recognize that all of this life, all of this has never been about you. And it's never been about what you like. Now, you're a big part of things, but you're not the main event. And so to help Elijah grab that very understanding, God may, makes room in this new grouping for someone else. God said, go back the way you came through the desert to Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael and make him king over Aram. Super important. Remember that. And then anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, making king over Israel. Super important. Remember that. Finally, anoint Elisha, 
son of Shaphat. How do you say that? Shaphat? I don't know. Shaphat? Let's just say Shaphat. From Abel, Manoah, to succeed you as prophet. And Elijah went straight out and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, in a field where there were 12 pairs of yoked oxen at work plowing. Elisha was in charge of the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak over him. Elisha deserted the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I'll follow you. Go ahead, said Elijah. But mind you, don't forget what I've just done for you, which is really rich coming from Elijah after all this just happened, right? So Elisha left. He took his yoke of oxen and butchered them. He made a fire with a plow, oh, so cool, and tackle, and then boiled the meat. Mmm, a true farewell meal for the family. And then he left and followed Elijah, becoming his right-hand man. Friends, I'm going to drop some pretty big details out of this last passage that hopefully blow your mind because the closer to this story is so, so good. Number one, Elisha sets on out obeys what God is doing, his first move is highly political. Why is it political? He is sent out to anoint two brand new leaders, right? Right? So first he goes out and he's going to anoint a brand new leader for Aram. And that is actually a swing back at the crown. Why? Because Aram is the reason that Jezebel, the king's wife, the not-so-good king's wife, that's where her and her clan, that's where they rule. That's their zone. That's their place. And then we have Israel. Well, Jezebel's husband, King Ahab, is in charge of that. So to anoint a new king when the current king is still in office is what? That's a coup. That's an uprising. That's an insurrection. So Elijah's first move is highly political. And secondly, it gets highly personal. Think about it. Elijah has just been commissioned and sent out by God to anoint his own replacement. That's got to be super weird. But do you see how things are beginning to open and expand for Elijah? Do you get what's happening right here? Based on the old patterns and the old groupings, Elijah thought he was all alone. But now, at just the right time, the others, who he was like, that real pattern, the new grouping is beginning to appear. And in a way, Elijah's passing on the torch, right? Because this story's never been about Elijah. He's not the main character. Elijah has run his lap, but the relay continues. And I feel like there's something in that for you and I this morning. A couple of weeks ago, you might remember at the beginning of this series, I shared this quote that talked a little bit about God sharing his power with us, the grand agency of God's love. And I ripped it off this jazz artist. Remember the quote here? It was, if you don't share power, it's because you're afraid of losing power. Jazz is the agency of sharing power. And we talked about how God's, the grand agency of God's power is sharing his love, sharing his power with you and I so that we can put it to use. Now, let me add one more musical insight on top of this, and then we're going to pull all the pieces together for this morning and then share in the Lord's Supper together. One more quote to add. Julian Baker says this, Punk, punk music, teaches the same inversion of power as the gospel. You learn that the coolest thing about having a microphone is turning it away from your own mouth. Come on. Have you ever been... To a punk rock show? Anyone? 
Hardcore, post-hardcore, metal, death metal, anyone? No? I've been to a couple of those. And they're different than a usual show, right? Arena rock, which I'm really snobby about, it sucks in my mind. Mind you, I saw Def Leppard once in arena, and they're in their 60s, and that was, that was a hard show to watch. Really, really, men in spandex at that age, not cool, not cool at all. But you know arena rock, right? You and 20,000 people. You're sitting far away in the bleachers. You can sort of make out what's happening. The sound echoes, it's far away, not great. But punk rock shows are way different. Let me describe the scene to you. You've never been to one before. Usually it's a dank room, a small club, low ceilings, really sweaty. The PA system, blasting super loud. You've got to wear ear... Old men like me got to wear earplugs at those shows now. Everyone is shoulder... Everyone used to be shoulder to shoulder in all those shows. And usually it costs 15 bucks, maybe 20 bucks on a rich night to get in. And how many people are there? You can get 100 people to a show like that, you're knocking the lights out. They're fantastic. Because the band's not a big deal, but their followers, however small they are, are dedicated. And what happens every single time in one of these shows is this. The front man or front woman will get to the edge of the stage. They'll have the microphone in their hand. Often the cord is wrapped around their forearm, sometimes around their neck. And when it comes to their big banger of a song and the chorus is about to break, the lead person takes the mic away from their own mouth, does one of these, and puts it into the crowd. And then do you know what happens next? The crowd sings every single word to the song from memory. And here's why that is important for you and I this morning. The only reason that we are here today is because somebody turned the mic away from their own mouth and pointed it towards somebody else. Think about it in the context of church history. Did you know that the church, capital C, existed for about 300 years before the Bible as we know it came together? Think about that. So in that span, that 300 years, crazy, right? It was the witness of the saints. It was this holy succession plan of making sure future disciples were conduits of God's wonder, God's power, and God's love. Sharing it, passing it on, so that the mission of God could, could continue to heal and renew this world beyond their own lives, beyond our own lives. So anointing your replacements, making disciples, is part of the show, right? Because it's never been about you. So then, with that in perspective, how do we understand the very last scene of this episode? You remember? Elisha, the new recruit, what does he do? He burns the tools of his old life, the ox and the plow. He actually burns the plow to cook the oxen. Because leaving behind the old tools, the old patterns, the old groupings, what does it do? It actually makes room for the new things that God wants to do next. So now, 
just like Elijah before him, Elisha leaves every grouping behind that previously he identified him, puts all that behind him. And he shares in the risk. And that actually might be the biggest miracle of this whole entire story, that Elisha responded to God's summons wholeheartedly and without reservation. And my hope this morning is that would be our encouragement as we partake and share in the Lord's Supper together. You have been summoned. And when you don't recognize the patterns, when you feel afraid and alone, when you have to do something as crazy as like anointing your own replacement, this meal is your sustenance. And it is your reminder that God is making everything new. Okay, my friends, it's a beautiful moment. Let's enjoy it together, shall we? I'm going to read from the scriptures. I'm going to prompt you when it's time for you to take the bread and to take the juice. So even now, moms and dads, if you want to get ready and, you know, maybe peel uh, for your kids, uh, the pods, I'll give you five seconds or so to do that. And again, there's no rush. And if it messes up, and if it spills, it's okay. We've got more. We'll figure this out. But I'm going to read now. I'm going to invite you in these last moments of our time together to take in the beauty of this meal, to take in its energy and sustenance, to take it in as a reminder that Jesus is still doing what Jesus has always been doing. And it's always included you. And so, for I received from the Lord while I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Will you take the bread? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Will you take the cup? Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen.